Hello, um, I'd like to welcome you to LIC and I'd like to welcome you to this European Provocations event at uh, the Forum for European Philosophy. Um, I'm Danielle Sands, I'm a fellow at the Forum. Um, and I'd like to welcome tonight's speaker, who is Dr. Richard Eason. Um, now, Richard is fellow at the Centre for Critical and Cultural Studies at the University of Queensland, where he's about to begin working on a project which is provisionally entitled Machine Lover of Jacques Derrida, Writings Post-Human. His first book is due for publication in March, and that's entitled Zoogenesis, Thinking Encounter with Animals. Um, and his talk today is called Plato Between the Teeth of the Beast, Animals and Democracy in Tomorrow's Europe. Okay, well, today, uh, the question I would like to consider um, concerns the relation between non-human animals and the constitution of a democratic community, with democracy understood both as an ideal theoretical concept and as an ongoing social practice. Traditionally, both philosophy and politics have tended to exclude other animals, deeming them irrelevant to what are claimed to be entirely human affairs. Over the past few decades, however, philosophers have increasingly challenged this assumption, beginning with Peter Singer and Tom Regan in the 70s and 80s, and then from within the continental tradition by Jacques Derrida, Giorgio Gambon, Andrew Benjamin, David Wood, to name just a few. It is with this in mind that I have chosen as a subject for this talk a passage from Book 8 of Plato's Republic, which I'll read in full in a moment. While the reasons for choosing such an ancient text may not appear immediately evident, not to mention the fact that Plato was particularly scathing in his dislike of democracy, the passage nonetheless is key to understanding the possible role of other animals in a transformed notion of democracy. Moreover, it will soon become clear just to what extent we are already living within Plato's supposedly ideal polis, be that as either citizens or as labourers. As such, this will force us to reconsider a basic question of our existence, that is whether, in fact, we are living in a democracy at all. First of all, however, we must consider the traditional use of republic as the translation of the title of Plato's dialogue. Plato's original, original term is better understood as constitution or government. Plato's dialogue, in other words, is concerned with the various possible ways of governing, that is, with the various constitutions and constituencies. To this end, Plato, in addition to his own ideal aristocratic form, which he glosses as government of the best, and which I'll continue to call the Republic for the sake of simplicity, examines four other forms of government. Democracy, the government of honour, or the government of the warrior class. Oligarchy, the government by the rich. Democracy, and finally, tyranny. Importantly, all these five constitutions are said to take place on a continuum. That is, while the aristocratic republic is the best possible government, it is also the case that democracy arises out of aristocracy. Similarly, oligarchy, while completely different and described by Plato as teeming with evils, nonetheless naturally follows from democracy, just as democracy too arises from oligarchy, and lastly, tyranny, 
the West disorder of the state leads on from democracy. In short, Plato begins with the best and ends with the West, noting that each form of government arises out of the previous one and which permits any number of intermediate forms along the way. Regarding the transition from democracy to tyranny, however, Plato is emphatic. Democracy, he says, inevitably leads to tyranny. The future of every democracy, in other words, is always that of the most extreme non-freedom, a future of abject slavery, labouring under a tyrannical dictatorship. Given this slippery slope from best to worst, we can also understand why Plato spends as much time on the question of how his ideal republic might be conserved once it takes power, as he does outlining its specific constitution. So here I'll consider Plato's critique of democracy on the one hand, and on the other, his proposed techniques for conserving power on behalf of the aristocratic best. This in turn allows us to address the following series of questions. Firstly, how might we understand the claim that the inclusion of other animals is in fact a prior condition of any fully democratic community? Secondly, what is the relation between non-human animals, today's ever-expanding proletariat or precariat, and the founding of a truly democratic constitution in terms of either control understood <coughs> as a force feeding or freedom understood as shared nourishment? Thirdly, what are we to make of the renewed concern with other animals, in which concern is based neither on animal rights nor on neo-Kantian notions of pity or compassion? Can a post-humanist notion of co-constitutive entanglement nourish a democratic idea or an ideal of the communal? And if so, what might this mean for our democratic, economic and ethical relations with other human beings in the era of neoliberalism and beyond. Plato argues that non-human animals share with humans a special relation to democracy. All animals, he writes, possess an instinct or an urge for freedom that is synonymous with the instinct or urge for democracy. Moreover, the repression of this urge from the social body is of the utmost importance for Plato, who fears above all else that an increased sensitivity towards just this shared possession inevitably risks igniting a revolution that will ultimately overthrow his ideal aristocracy. Clearly, then, the role of animals within democracy is far from that of mute, passive endurance. Instead, Plato acknowledges a revolutionary relation between the freedom of non-human animals, the uprising of the working classes, and the founding upon the ruins of oligarchy a democratic city which is nonetheless always plagued by the double threat of anarchy and tyranny. Plato goes on to argue that humanity must, and for political rather than economic reasons, harden its heart to the ongoing exploitation and suffering of other animals. This latter forming a group that, in times of crisis, includes all those forced to exchange the labour of their bodies in order to survive. By contrast, I suggest that a rigorous understanding of democracy requires that we pay heed to this dangerous instinct for freedom revealed in the first instance by the intimacy of our animal relationships. 
only then do we begin to gain a sense of an explicitly democratic inter- and intra-relation of human and non-human beings. This will lead us to consider the role played by the mouth in the constitution of both Plato's Republic and the democratic city, as well as the institutional role of the Platonic guardians put in place to protect and conserve what turns out to be perhaps the most cynical of oligarchies by ensuring the closed mouth of the worker, a corporeal suppression that philosopher Georges Bataille describes as the narrow constipation of a strictly human attitude. By contrast, only the wide open mouths of human and non-human animals alike permit the articulation of a fully democratic socius. Unwittingly, no doubt, what Plato's discourse on his ideal republic lets slip is that sensitivity to the freedom of other animals is an essential first step in the constitution of a truly free society. Such is the sensitivity for shared nourishment, for eating well. Animal others, then, become fundamental to any understanding of community. Such a sensitivity forces the formerly closed mouth wide open, preparing to devour any social pact founded upon gross inequality, slavery and injustice. So here's the passage from Book 8 of The Republic which finds Socrates talking with Adamantus. I will, for the most part, skip over the replies, insofar as, as usual, they, they simply accede to the points expressed by Socrates. Democratic freedom, says Socrates, makes its way into private households and, in the end, breeds anarchy, even among the animals. What do you mean? asks Adamantus. I mean that a father accustoms himself to behave like a child and fear his sons, while the son behaves like a father, feeling neither shame nor fear in front of his parents in order to be free. A resident alien or a foreign visitor is made equal to a citizen, and he is their equal. A teacher in such a community is afraid of his students and flatters them, while the students despise their teachers or tutors. And in general, the young imitate their elders and compete with them in word and deed, while the old stoop to the level of the young and are full of play and pleasantry, imitating the young for fear of appearing disagreeable and authoritarian. The utmost freedom for the majority is reached in such a democratic city when bought slaves, both male and female, are no less free than those who bought them. And I almost forgot to mention the extent of the legal equality of men and women and of the freedom of the relations between them. At this point, Adamantus asks Socrates about the animals, such as are found in a democratic city. No one, replies Socrates, who hasn't experienced it, would believe just how much freer domestic animals are in a democratic city than anywhere else. As the proverb says, dogs become like their mistresses, horses and donkeys are accustomed to roam freely and proudly along the streets, bumping into anyone who doesn't get out of their way, and all the rest are equally full of freedom. To sum up, do you notice how all these things together make the citizen's soul so sensitive that if anyone even puts upon himself the least degree of slavery, they become angry and cannot endure it. And in the end, as you know, they take no notice of the laws, whether written or unwritten, in order to avoid having any master at all. This, then, is the fine and impetuous origin from which tyranny seems to me to evolve. The same disease that developed in oligarchy, 
and destroyed it also develops here, but it is more widespread and virulent because of the general permissiveness, and it eventually enslaves democracy. In fact, excessive action in one direction usually sets up a reaction in the opposite direction. This happens in seasons, in plants, in bodies, and last but not least, in constitutions. Extreme freedom can't be expected to lead to anything but a change to extreme slavery, whether for a private individual or for a city. Then I don't suppose that tyranny evolves from any constitution other than democracy, the most severe and cruel slavery from the most utmost freedom. For Plato, then, democracy inevitably results in tyranny because the democratic citizen becomes so sensitized to anything even remotely resembling control or, co or coercion that ultimately he or she refuses to abide by any and all laws, including those imposed upon themselves. Anarchy thus displaces democracy, leaving the way open for the tyrant to seize power and thereafter inflict upon the democratic citizen the most cruel and severe constraints. It is, suggests Plato, simple social physics, every action having an equal and opposite reaction. As a result, a key concern in the formulation of Plato's ideal constitution <coughs> consists of its ability or otherwise to ensure that any hint of democracy is immediately stamped out, lest it fall victim to that hateful slide towards the West. Thus the rulers of his republic must be permanently on the lookout for signs and symptoms that point to the emergence of anything even resembling a democratic sensitivity. Most telling and most dangerous in this regard, insists Plato, is sensitivity towards the enslavement and exploitation of other animals. Indeed, democracy and domestic animals would seem to arrive together the latter only becoming visible, that is, recognised as material entities capable of willed physical encounters when allowed the freedom of the democratic city. By contrast, Plato's animals are invisible labourers, employed in tasks that, while tedious, unpleasant and lowering, are nonetheless necessary to the conservation of the Republic and thus to preserve the benefits it allows for the privileged free. This latter synonymous for Plato with the best. Animal freedom, therefore, is both a symptom of an emerging democratic sensitization within non-democratic constitutions and a sign of the impending arrival of tyranny within democratic societies. Plato also points out a clear link between the democratic freedoms of animals and those of slaves, women and workers. Animal, slave, worker. But simply these are the three ideally invisible groups that together constitute what is necessary for the Republic to function as the ideal dwelling of the best. Moreover, the boundaries between these three groups are extremely porous. <coughs> Women, for example, belong to all three groups at different times. And during times of crisis spared by the democratic edge for freedom, the three groups merge together, becoming an undifferentiated horde of wild animals. Wildness being, for Plato, the same as the absence of justice. Hence, essential to the conservation of the Republic, that is, as a technique to prevent such crises, is a continued insensitivity and thus invisibility towards all those who provide the labour necessary for its continuance. As such, 
and as an explicitly political imperative, Plato expressly maintains that the souls of men must therefore be hardened in its relations with non-human animals, a hardening achieved by propagating callous indifference to their daily enslavement and exploitation. We can still witness this imperative functioning today with the continued mainstream dismissal of animal concern as something irrational and sentimental, terms that are all too often mere synonyms for womanly. Without this calculated insensitivity towards other animals, insists Plato, the masses will inevitably become sensitized to the democratic notion of possible freedom for all. Democracy, in other words, right at its origin, necessarily includes freedom for other animals. Indeed, animal concern can be considered a democratic imperative. Crucial, then, for the survival of the Republic, and we will hear soon whether this Republic is in truth an aristocracy, a meritocracy, or rather something much closer to a human zoo, is some foolproof method that somehow ensures that the necessary 99% continue to invisibly serve and service the privileged 1%. To this end, Plato introduces into his polis the guardian of the law, a spectral being whom from birth and even before the 99% is forcibly given to swallow, coerced into accepting its body within their own, often to the point of being unable to distinguish between them. The role of the guardian, moreover, is not to protect the general population, nor is its role even to control the Republic's human inhabitants. Instead, the guardian is expressly installed to tame animal behaviour, an installation that goes by way of the mouth. Along the way, Plato introduces into his Republic two entirely new beings. First, the worker ape, and second, the psychoanalyst who is needed to ensure his continuing social fitness. In another dialogue, Plato argues that the purpose of what he calls the human mouse current arrangement is to serve as the entry passage for what is necessary and as the exit for what is best. Necessary in this respect refers to the nourishment required by the body in order to function, the intake of oxygen, of food and of water. Exiting from the body, the best, meanwhile, refers to what Plato describes as the stream of speech that flows out through the mouth, the in that instrument of intelligence which is the fairest and best of all streams. Necessary material nourishment thus enters through the mouth, whereas the best exits the mouth in the form of spoken language. Key here is Plato's description of the mouth in conjunction with language as an instrument of intelligence. It is, in other words, an instrument, a tool, to be employed in the constitution of what is intelligible. The mouth, of course, does not have to function in this fashion. If it did, there would be no need for Plato to insist that it do so. Instead of a stream of speech exiting from the mouth, for example, we might experience instead a stream of vomit. Vomiting, often a necessary purging of the body, this consists of a reversal of the mouth's proper employment, an impropriety or a corruption as far as Plato is concerned. At its most basic then, a reversal of the directions of what is necessary and what is best would represent the total corruption of the mouth's proper purpose. What form of government might we find then 
in which the best enters through the mouth and the necessary exits. Plato's answer, of course, is democracy. A world turned upside down insofar as, in a democracy, it is rather the necessary, that is, the body of that chimerical beast of worker-slave-animal, which enslaves the best, that is, the language of the masters. What is clear, however, is that the mouth, be it in the republic or in the democratic city, is the instrument of enslavement. Plato's claim, however, is that the rulers of the republic enslave the necessary workers, slaves and animals to a lesser degree than the free worker ape enslaves the best under democracy. As we've heard for Plato, democracy, the edge or instinct for freedom and the arrival of tyranny are inseparable. Together they consist of a disease of the mouth, a disease which enslaves the very best instruments of Plato's republic. The workers, the slaves, the animals, says Plato, are fit only to perform those invisible tasks necessary to the ongoing smooth running of the republic, and as such are fit only to feed the body, that is, to materially consume. Readers of Karl Marx will no doubt recognise this description only too well. The necessary 99% are fit only to exchange labour power for the means to subsist and thus to be able to turn up for work the following day. The aristocratic 1%, meanwhile, are fit only for the task of the best, that is, fit only to reason and to teach, and who must not be distracted by the necessity of having to actually work for a living. Just in case we missed it, Plato spells it out. The leonine spirit that is the mark of the best is lacking in the labourer, because the latter is forced to attend to the necessary appetites of his beastly body, becoming accustomed from youth on to being insulted for the sake of money, the money needed to satisfy those appetites. Diseases of the mouth are thus better understood as aberrations of consumption, that is, the result of not consuming properly according not to the dictates of the state, but rather, as we shall discover, according to the dictates of the market. At the extremes of Plato's Republic, then, we find at one pole the elite made up of the esteemed purely ascetic citizens, such as Socrates and Plato, who apparently eliminated entirely the desires of the body, and whose mouth, unsullied by its necessities, thus serves purely as an exit for the best. <coughs> at the other end of the spectrum, separated by all those whose bodily desires are either weaker or stronger, are located those who have utterly abandoned themselves <coughs> to the desires of the body, the mouth having become solely an orifice of immoderate entry. Standing at this latter pole, says Plato, we behold an odd, almost Kafkaesque creature, a hybrid that is instinctively despised by all the good citizens of the Republic. This creature, declares Plato, is the worker ape. Why else, he asks, is the condition of a manual worker so despised? Is it for any other reason than that when the best part is naturally weak in someone, it can't rule the beasts within, but can only serve them? As we just heard, those who are compelled from youth onwards to undergo the insult of having to labour for money necessarily lose their lion-like spirit. Now Plato makes the link explicit. It is the insult of having to labour for money 
that transforms the laborer into an ape instead of a lion. And it is precisely because of this transformation that the laborer is a being to be despised by the best. This notion of a platonic labor exchange shifts the would-be aristocratic hierarchy of the polis dramatically. Now the line is not between those whose natural disposition of the mouth is that of an exit for the best and those whose natural inclination is to, ba- to abandon themselves to every shameless act of the body, but rather between those who need not concern themselves with the necessary satisfactions of the body and those who must work to survive. The independently wealthy, therefore, are akin to private zookeepers putting their ape colony to work in order to ensure their own leisurely comfort. In the freedom to seek satisfaction for bodily desires marked by the open, all-consuming entrance of the mouth, Plato thus equates the democratic age with the despised character of the manual worker. Plato is, moreover, absolutely terrified by this chimeric spectre that he evokes, the very personification of a world turned upside down, the world of a revolution in which all that is good is stood on its head. The worker ape, half man, half beast, appears as the frightful figure of the masses, the personification, in short, of democracy. Here, then, can we still claim with any certainty that we are, in fact, citizens of a democracy? Or are we rather part of the heart-hardened masses whose labour ensures an idyllic republican existence for the lucky few? As we know, tyranny for Plato is the consequence of democracy in what is an unequivocal sequence of cause and effect. Moreover, democracy tyranny is the perfect inversion of the perfect republic and is thus the natural, the absolute, the perfect opposition of such an incumbent government. This carefully constructed ideology of a monstrous democracy and of the democratic monster and it is an ideology, nothing more, as Plato himself would probably agree. Thus automatically casts Plato's government in the role of guardian against tyranny, always on the lookout for even the merest stirrings of freedom, protecting its citizens from an insidious enemy that is all around us. The masked democrat, with her irrational empathy for other living creatures, could be anywhere, your neighbour, your teacher, your paper boy or paper girl, ready to explode with her terrifying bodily desire for freedom. While apparently based upon sound philosophical logic and precise scientific method, this construction, the framework of which is no doubt familiar, is in fact a narrative of almost infinite self-legitimation. The agents of government that must, must thus be permanently on the lookout for the emergence of democratic practices, constantly scanning the polis for signs and symptoms marking the origins of freedom. Most important for Plato is if this dangerous notion of democratic freedom is to be stamped out at its very source, it is not that they must keep an eye on the attitude of the masses towards the elite but rather to keep close tabs on the way in which the ordinary man or woman in the street engages with other animals, that is, how she shares her life. At the very grassroots of democracy, Plato thus locates an instinctual freedom of which each and every animal possesses an equal share. 
there still remains for Plato the question of how exactly to repress this democratic instinct from within the boundaries of the Republic. While the 1% is said to naturally exist within the moderating light of reason, the remainder, by contrast, are necessarily unreasonable beings, inasmuch as they remain <coughs> too strongly bound to their bodily desires, some of which, aligned with unnecessary pleasures, are considered by Plato to be lawless, and which together make up, of course, the desire for democracy, given its ultimate refusal of all laws becomes indistinguishable from anarchy. Even within the ideal republic, however, Plato acknowledges that lawless desires, desires which are at once the desire for lawlessness, cannot be entirely suppressed, no matter how effective the guardians turn out to be. So where then might such terrible, terrifying desires emerge? Nowhere other than in our dreams, says Plato. Only then might the soul be caught napping, and that the potential consequences of which are truly horrifying. Fired up by its lawless dreams of freedom, of revolution, the body wakes abruptly <coughs> to discover itself entirely under the sway of its beastly and savage part, casting off sleep and concerned only with finding a way to gratify itself. At such times in Cisplato, and this is a quote directly from Book 9 of the Republic, there is nothing that it won't dare do, free of all control, by shame or reason. It doesn't shrink from trying to have sex with a mother, as it supposes, or with anyone else at all, whether man, god, or beast. It will commit any foul murder, and there is no food it refuses to eat. In a word, it omits no act of folly or shamelessness. Hence, despite even the worker ape's own best intentions, beastly and savage libidinal desires will attack him when his defences are down. As such, no one that means one can never count on any single one of the masses to remain within the law, as the entire existence of the masses is marked at the level of their very being as prone to periodic explosions of terrifying democratic violence at any moment. Interestingly, during this description of a mouth abruptly set free of all reasonable control, the male worker ape abruptly ceases to be a gendered being, the grammar of the passage shifting from a he to an it. This shift offers itself up to a specifically psychoanalytic reading, especially in the context of Plato's remarks about repressed antisocial desires emerging through dreams. Sigmund Freud, as is well known, divides the psyche into three separate domains. The ego, which can be roughly described as the everyday consciousness, the superego, or the ego ideal, as the authoritarian voice of social conscience, and finally the id, which consists of the seething mass of unconscious desires. In Freud's original German, the ego is the I, das Ich, and the id is das Es, that is, the it. Plato's grammatical shift could thus be said to mark the shift from the ego to the id, from the I to the it. The ramping, rampaging worker thus becomes a rampaging it, a rioting mass of hitherto repressed desire. Moreover, reduced thus to an it, the worker ape is rendered both inhuman and animal. That is, he is being dehumanized and animalized by Plato's narrative. Simultaneously, the dominance of the mouth as entrance becomes absolute. 
Every desirous act is mistakenly considered as food for the body. Incest, bestiality, sex with gods, patricide, matricide, infanticide, regicide, cannibalism. No act, as Plato makes clear, can be omitted. While the notion of a specifically psychoanalytic reading of Plato's Republic will probably sound somewhat anachronistic, in fact, in various places throughout the many dialogues, Plato himself outlines something very close to a new science of psychoanalysis, with specific focus on the discipline of dream interpretation. For example, he suggests the need for external interpreters to pass judgment on the divinatory quality of dreams. Such judges who are thus expositors of utterances or visions communicated through riddles must analyse any and all visions to determine how and for whom they signify some future, past or present, good or evil. We should perhaps not be surprised, however, to discover that Plato ultimately proposes an inverted or reverse Freudianism. Returning to the slumbering labourer within the Republic, we know her dreams are the province par excellence of the lawless desires of worker apes. According to Plato, then, the dreams of the worker have the potential to reveal the future, a future both lawless and desired. Such are the dreams of revolution. Given the stakes, it comes as no surprise that Plato wants exactly those dreams to be interpreted by competent judges, just one of the techniques Plato installs to protect the 1% from the desires of the remaining 99 Techniques, moreover, which are explicitly psychoanalytic in practice. <coughs> As we know, the mouth remains central to these techniques of control. In this, the mouth is for Plato a pharmacon, that is, something that can serve as both remedy and poison at once. Hence, he argues, for all those apes in whom law and reason are either weak or absent, the danger of the animal mouth which poisons the Republic with its urge for freedom must be cured by the mouth as pure exit. The language of the rulers, in other words, must somehow function to place within the body of the worker something similar to what rules the best. Put simply, Plato suggests that through the forced imposition of the language of reason and law, an external guardian can therefore be installed directly within the worker, a highly efficient superego expressly conceived so as to make of the labourer an amenable, an amenable slave. Even more importantly, it is the enslaving of which the worker ape knows absolutely nothing. It is better for everyone this way, Plato writes, to be ruled by divine reason, preferably within himself and his own, but otherwise imposed from without, so that as far as possible all will be alike and friends, governed by the same thing. This, he says, is clearly the aim of the law, which is the ally of everyone. But it's also our aim in ruling our children. We don't allow them to be free until we establish a constitution in them. Just as in a city, and by fostering their best part, equip them with a guardian and ruler, similar to our own, to take our place. Then, and only then, we set them free. Given this explicit program of taming, which is Plato's term, one can only assume that in contrast to the visceral democratic counterpart, 
Plato here uses the notion of freedom somewhat ironically. Despite the installation of the guardian within her own body, it is essential that the worker remain ignorant as to the existence of this intimate instrument of control. In order to understand this mechanism for taming the urge for freedom, we need to take on board two more important concepts from psychoanalysis, introjection and incorporation. While the roles and even the meanings of these terms vary significantly depending on which analyst one consults, most will nonetheless agree that they refer to specific ways of interacting with, indeed of coming to terms with, the entities that are all around us. At its simplest, interjection and incorporation are the different ways in which the psyche takes something of the external world within itself and in so doing nourishes itself. As, as the psychoanalyst Maria Torak makes clear, interjection always involves growth, a broadening of the ego by way of the mouth in which the external is assimilated with the internal, a process through which both beings, the internal and the external, are positively transformed along the way. Such an open, enhancing technique of engagement serves no purpose in the polis of Plato's Republic. Indeed, in order for the Platonic guardian of the law to function, it simply cannot be interjected by the worker ape. That is, it cannot be worked over by the worker for the simple reason that the language of the rulers serves principally to conceal the desires of the workers from the workers themselves. Instead, all those labourers necessary to the Republic must rather incorporate the guardian of the law. Incorporation, explains Torek, is the first lie and the first instrument of deception. A trick, in other words, which leads the ego to mis mistake its external enslavement for an interjection of its own making. As such, the incorporation of the guardian overwrites the worker ape's inherent desire for freedom by splitting the ego of the worker ape into subject and object, the guardian having been forcibly consumed, devoured and installed as an other in me. The instinct for equal freedoms is thus corralled by security guards within the animal body that is quite simply the imposition of language itself. The 99%, in short, are forced into articulating their existence through the language of the 1%. All of this, insists Plato, is a matter of justice for everyone. The Republic is not tyrannical like a democracy, he said, but is rather a just city for all who dwell within its walls. However, in speaking of the labourer as someone to be despised simply because he or she has to suffer the insult of being forced to sell her labour in order to survive, Plato ultimately gives himself away. It is this very insult, the insult we know today as the ever-increasing exploitation that is the very reason of being of global capitalism pursuit of surplus value, this very insult which necessarily shelters the dreams of revolution that is, the dreams of democracy shared by every animal, human and non-human, who are exploited for their labour. This, in short, is Plato's great fear, the great fear that is the secret motor of his and of our republic. Plato speaks not from a position of justice for everyone, but rather seeks to impose upon the poor the rules of the rich. 
We must, he insists, be governed by the same law, the law that money is power. The guardian incorporated within the body of the worker is, in simplest terms, an explicitly normalizing discourse designed at the outset to protect the wealthy from the dreams and desires of those forced to live hand to mouth. In this context, it is instructive to read the EU directive appended to the extract from the Republic accompanying this talk. Attitudes towards animal concern, the directive acknowledges, vary from nation to nation throughout the European Union. And while the EU will set the minimum level this concern may take, it will nonetheless allow for certain flexibility should a given nation wish to insist on a greater care being taken of their non-human inhabitants. There is, however, an extremely important coda. Any insistence on better care being taken must not affect the functioning of the internal market. Here we find a clear example of the language of the master serving to ensure that concerned relations with other animals are not allowed to interfere with the demands of capitalism. At the same time, it exemplifies too the ongoing depoliticization of the sovereign nation, with the EU ensuring that national governments can blithely claim irresponsibility, while the market ensures on its part that we continue to harden our hearts to the exploitation of our animal kin, or at least ensure that their horrifying labours remain invisible. Meanwhile, in our respective republics, ancient and modern, not a single worker ape may be permitted to escape the normalising operation. To allow even one worker to articulate the unlawful desires of the masses could be catastrophic. To this end, incorporation in the psychoanalytic sense is in fact the only possible remedy, insofar as only incorporation forecloses even the possibility of articulation. The words of desire of revolution, the articulation of the insult, literally cannot be voiced due to the presence of the incorporated guardian. For Plato, to eat well is cannibalistic through and through. In being prohibited from consummating the lawless democratic urge, the worker ape must be forced to consume an effigy of the rich. To incorporate an external ape, sorry, to incorporate an external guardian in a process of auto-cannibalism through which the worker ultimately consumes himself, burying his dreams and his desires deep within himself. Only in this way is the insult prevented from erupting into an instinct for freedom, into a revolutionary consciousness. The cure of incorporation being, according to Torok, <coughs> precisely that which protects against the painful process of reorganization, of interjection, of growth and of transformation. Incorporation, she asks, implies a loss that occurred before the desires concerning the object might have even been freed, whilst the very fact of having had a loss is simultaneously denied. This, writes Torok, is an eminently illegal act, creating or reinforcing imaginal ties and hence dependency. Things, however, don't quite end here. The incorporated object, here the guardian of the law, installed in place of and to guard against the desires quelled by the desires quelled by repression inevitably recall that something else was lost. The incorporated object itself helplessly marks and commemorates 
the site of repression. Moreover, and he, Torak, and Plato are in agreement. These dangerous libidinal desires, while foreclosed in the light of day, nonetheless return in the dead of night, coming closest to the surface in dreams. The ghost of the crypt, writes Torak, comes back to haunt the cemetery guard, subjecting him to unexpected sensations. For Plato, in dreams, the purity of the world of ideas is lost, replaced by bastard configurations that retain the potential to betray those terrifyingly lawless desires. As a result, the, the Republic must, in order to ensure the conservation of its status quo, remain ever vigilant to the slumbering desires of its apes. To do this, Plato even goes far as to suggest that every single sign and symptom betrayed by the actual dreams of all the workers should be analysed as a preventative measure. If we read Plato with Torque, we discover that the sight of repressed desires, commemorated by the guardian itself, is typically signalled by a way of a fantasy of ingestion, such as Plato imagines. While there may be no food that the rampaging worker ape, consumed by the wild democratic edge, will not eat, this will never set the actual and persistently active hunger for interjection. The offer of food is only ever an attempt to deceive, an attempt to fill and thus close the mouth of the labourer with something, with anything else. It is not this rampage of consumption that Plato fears might erupt within his republic, rather such a rampage is both symptom and substitution of the hunger for interjection, a mark of the existential need for progressive libidinal nourishment. In a sense, Plato's fear of the rapacious starving worker is certainly justified, constituted as it is by the very mechanism of incorporation meant to suppress it. In this crisis of the polis, the mouth of the worker, empty, open, teeth bare, calls out in vain to be filled with a language that permits interjection, that permits the articulation of what has been suppressed. In conclusion, we are left with two related questions. First, how might one interject that which has been suppressed by incorporation? Still reading Plato with Torok, this would amount to an ongoing process of growth and transformation by which the entire social terrain would be reorganized according to the libidinal relations of freedom characteristic of a genuine democracy to come. Second, insofar as this question of freedom for all concerns at its very origin, a sensitivity to the enslaving and exploitation of other animals, might one not say that a sensitivity to the consumption of animals understood as a cannibalistic consumption of flesh is a principal condition of any such authentic democracy to come as Plato indeed fears. Ultimately, we are brought back to the question of instinct. Plato understands the potential abandonment of the labourer to the democratic instinct as an abandoning of the human self to the animal realm. He, of course, can see in this abandonment of the properly human only an illness, a madness of the body that is both consequence and cause of the, the disease that is democracy requiring the vigilance of a power simultaneously diagnostic and repressive. The Platonic Guardian, put simply, ensures the closed mouth of the worker. But for us, things are perhaps different. 
contrary to the entire Western humanist tradition, what we are tracing here is an unlikely and unruly privileging of instinct. Rather than excluding other animals, instinct here is essential to the revolutionary articulation of a fully democratic society that necessarily includes other animals. Philosopher Georges Bataille gives us a sense of this when he writes of how terror and atrocious suffering turn the mouth into the organ of rending screams. The overwhelmed individual throws back his head while phonetically stretching his neck in such a way that the mouth becomes, as much as possible, an extension of the spinal column. In other words, in the position it normally occupies in the constitution of animals, as if explosive impulses were to spare directly out of the body through the mouth. idea of a perfectible form um, which we will get closer to and closer to and closer to without ever actually achieving it, which is very much a Kantian idea of a, a regulative idea. And he goes to great lengths to um, somehow say that this is not a regulative idea, but I still, I don't, I don't see how it differs, to be honest. I don't think, it's just as easy, what he says is different it's just as easy you could read in Kant as being there as well. So, I mean, a democracy to come, as I mean it in this sense, is just um, democracy understood as, as not something that we have now, um, as something that would have to be understood as something utterly transformed. Um, and is it something that's possible? Um, I, think, I think it is possible, but it's also, a, it, I say it's both a, a construct and a practice. So um, I think the idea of a democratic relation is possible. So um, I mean, it's uh, it would be something again that would be worked towards, but there would be never any idea of what would constitute the ideal. So it would constantly be a process of of working out in such a way as that all the participants, that uh, no one is excluded as far as possible, and um, the, the rules of the game essentially are not set in advance, which is what I think Derrida's important his notion is that you can't have a program or a plan um, because 
by doing so you're already setting an agenda which by definition in order to be, to be defined as an agenda is based upon an exclusion to begin with. So I think this is, is what in Derrida is more interesting. Uh, you often refer to the 99% and 1%. Yeah. I mean, forgive me, is that something that occurs as a notion at all in Derrida or Plato or any, any um, other thinkers, or is it, just, is it just something that we're all more familiar with? Um, basically, it's years. just um, as a reference to the comparison between the situation we now and the situation then. So, um, I mean, it would be very easy to, to show that in... Um, in ancient Greece, it would be very much a kind of a 1%, 99% difference. You weren't so, intending to echo it? Um, it was, I mean, the idea was to, as to what's going on now with the, the protests, yeah. You see it as a close fit? Um, I see it, I see there is, um, there's a lot of the methods and techniques of control that are there in, in Plato's Republic. Um, are still in force today. Yeah. I mean, a I teacher mean, like yourself would be part of the 1% in um, reading, I think you mentioned that. Well, I mean, yes, I mean, there's obviously, there is, you would have to take entirely historical context into account. I mean, this is very much as a, I mean, this is supposed to be a non-academic forum, in a sense. So, um, I take it as, as being given permission to take certain broad generalisations. I'm sort of struggling to sort of understand in, in your de definition of democracy the difference between democracy and anarchy. I just, I mean, when I think democracy, I'm thinking, for instance, you know, Germany or the US, and I'm thinking of you know constitutional structures which have you know safeguards against minority, you know, you know. Oh, president, it's it's a this idea that sort of the you know it goes way beyond sort of just simple direct democracy, majoritarianism, and I just don't I don't quite I find it a real a sort of a kind of a hypothetical argument that doesn't really apply to any democracy um, that I could think of. But can you maybe? Um, I don't know how, which point you you're saying that. The argument that democracy and anarchy are, are synonymous, is that you're saying is No, I'm sort of saying in your argument they seem to be synonymous. Well, no, uh, um, because I don't Plato quite see synonymous. the link between democracy and freedom for starters. I don't, I, you know, that's a very flimsy link which I don't really see very strongly. Um, because most democracies are governed not by freedom but by law. Uh -huh. um, and they tend to be sort of, you know, representative mechanisms, you know, institutional mechanisms to establish and scrutinize these laws. And it's not a sort of a kind of a, an anarchic process the way it comes across to me. I just, you know, maybe you can explain, you know, in which country you would sort of see that or in, in which Europe you would sort of see this right. uh, um, platonic problem. Right. Um, well, start off, um, I never um, suggested that um, democracy and anarchy or equivalent. Plato suggests that they are. Plato suggests that democracy will become anarchy because um, the democratic citizen um, needs to be free so therefore it will ultimately reject all written and unwritten laws so therefore anarchy results. Right? 
Um, I'm not saying that I believe that is the case at all. I it's think counter to our understanding of democracy, isn't it? Yes. Because we don't believe in a kind of free-fall democracy, but we believe in a constitutional democracy. Oh. But um, what you have with, with Plato is you have this, um, this kind of oligarchic structure, which is... Um, which he fears, he has this, this idea of, of this terrifying democratic edge, which, is, which he equates with this edge for freedom. Right? But it could equally just be considered as an edge for inclusion. So, I mean, his ideas of, of this sliding scale of constitu you know, constituencies and all that, it's not, it's, there's, never, there's never been these things. These are, these are his um, kind of I mean, he does make the point there's lots of intermediaries in between. So, um, I would guess that he's arguing that these are taken in, you know, um, ideal forms of, or ideal points along the way. Um, but certainly, his idea of, I mean, Plato's idea of democracy is very odd. I mean, as you said, there, he seems to think that um, democracy is anarchy, that there's no... Right. But my argument is that a lot of what he's describing under the guise of his ideal republic are very similar to what we find in constitutional democracy. So my argument is his republic is, is more like democracy than anything he's describing as democracy. But still, um, what interests me is this, which he, you know, this fear that he has for this, for what he understands the democratic edge, but which is, you know, you could. Um, easily, just as easily describe it as being a, a kind of, you know, in Marxian terms of a, of a raising of consciousness or whatever. This, um, his fear that if, you know, people who are labouring under, under unfair conditions suddenly perceive animals and um, relate themselves as somehow kin to that, that will reveal something about the unfairness of the social structure. I mean, um, whether you want to, whatever you want to call these forms, democracy. I mean, I would agree that there has never been any form of government that that Plato described. Um, other than I would say, he's, you know, the closest one he's actually come to is his ideal one, which I think is his republic is probably the closest to a constitutional democracy. And we see. Yeah, um, I think the problem comes from Plato's um, fear of the animal, isn't it? Mm. So he thinks so because he equates the worker, the slave, and the animal, um, then the animal urge will take over, and therefore inevitably democracy. You know, if we give democracy to the worker, we will have animals taking over and bumping. I just noted the the, the animals will bump into people in the street, mm. and they will, you know they won't get out of the way. Whereas we kind of know that in a democracy we all agree that we are going to get out of the way so that we can all pass each other in the street. Um, so what, what I think is obviously Plato's making some sort of possibly category error with the animal human there. But then I'm interested in what you would say would be the place of animals today in our democracy, seeing that animals do kind of bump into each other in the street. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, so where is the place of extending democracy as we understand it um, to animals mm. in practical terms today? Um, well, I mean, this is essentially um, the problem that we're faced after the failure of um, rights-based arguments and um, essentially care ethics. Um, the problem is, is always going to be 
the overwhelming power of the market. Um, and I don't know the answer. I mean, this is, this is what needs to be found. These ways of trying to bring... Because, I mean, I mean the, sort of the newest thing that's happened, I suppose, it was different before the sort of... However you want to take the, the, how the animal's been taken up in continental philosophy. But certainly within the analytic tradition, the last new thing that's happened was the Great Apes Project. Um, and this idea and the, you know, of almost getting in one European um, country, they almost got rights for the great apes, you know, human rights for the great apes. Um, and it just seems an utterly self-defeating project because um, it, you know, there's all this lobbying and work and trying to work within it in order to, to basically be given human rights to an animal. And then maybe after 20 years it happens... And then you've got to start again with the next animal there. But would an animal ever be able to participate in democracy? In well, this is why, I mean, the rights... I mean, I'm very much um, opposed to the notion of, of rights as a, as a As a solution as a useful, to that particular yes. problem. Okay. I mean, it has to be... Um, there has to be a change in, in our... the way we, we relate, the way we entangle, the, an understanding of... of the body as something which can no longer be considered as an organism which is which is self-contained. That you know, an understanding that we, we you know, we are all kind of ecologies, and we cannot survive as long as we continue to consider ourselves as, as closed, closed beings. So personhood and the giving of personhood to animals would be part of that idea that of the closed. Yeah, I mean, I would, again, now as far as I can see, the personhood is just a, another extension of, of rights. Yeah. It, it's you know, the person is always going to be the human person. Yeah, and it's always going to mm. be the non-ecological thinking mm. of the individual. Um, but sense. this idea of a, a you know a kind of an understanding of the self as, as this utterly dissented, scattered, um, where the, you cannot fix a boundary between between where one body ends and another begins. Mm. I think this has, has far more scope for it. I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm, I'm, I'm realizing how, how incredibly ignorant I've been for such a long time about Plato and you know so forth, and you know the, with with the you know the unions, the tube strikes, the what's happening now that you know that we don't need actual human beings on, you know, to help other human beings on two platforms and, you know, disabled people don't need help and don't deserve help and, and all of this stuff, this sort of direct link and it's just been so much fun learning you know, and hearing this and sort of seeing Thatcherism and falling into place and, and, um, and, and also I've had to deal myself recently way too much with the medical community. Mm-hmm which sees people as body parts, and particularly I find over here more so than in the States. Um, patient rights, your um, access to your own medical records, mm-hmm. the battle, no, you can't know anything about, you know, you can't know your, your body, it's not your body, it's my body, and, and, and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And the battle for to be a whole person, um, and, and I'll never forget a few years back having major, major, major surgery, and asking a question of a surgeon who turned, who said, whose response was, "Why do you need to know that?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and so it just all. Thank you. I'm, it's all falling into place very much. 
but it is. It's it's the battles that we have, and I'm for just basics. Mm-hmm. And that one percent in the medical community that we're not we're sort of the if we know if we have access to our own medical reports, we'll run amok with them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. got to, it's got to stop. Uh, I mean, I mean, this too. See, it goes back to Plato. This idea of the body needing to be sanitized and closed off and seen as something that 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 is somehow um, not only disgusting but somehow you should be ashamed of it. That's reprehensible. We have this with Plato's um, ordering of which senses are better than other senses. So, so senses over distance are far more important. So sight is much more important than touch for Plato. Um, you know, he'd, he'd quite happily get rid of, of touch if he could, this idea of bodies interacting with bodies. Um, and the sanitization and, and closing off of, of people's bodies is part of this. I mean, it's, I, mean I think, um, as you say, medical terminology is one of the clearest examples of, of this idea of the language of the masters, which, which you, you do still have to submit to. And, and still, in the majority of cases, go along thinking that you, you've done this on, by choice or whatever, or you know, you're making freely informed decisions when it costs you not. They, they don't, doctors don't like me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, GPs here, yeah, if you go in there and, and suggest that you might know what's wrong with yourself, then mm-hmm. you're in trouble from the start. And you know the parts of your own body mm-hmm. and you call them by their actual names <laughs> yes. instead of your tummy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> briefly mentioned um, the EU directive that mm. you put on your handout um, and the problems um, of that sort of thinking. You talked about the language of the masters and the uh, effect of the market. Um, I mean, this is a, if you look at the whole document, it's massive. I was reading before it came out. Uh, do you therefore think that this is the wrong way about wrong way of going about the problem, or do you think there's anything to be gained by? tackling the problems with treatment of non-human animals in this way? Because in lots of circles this is seen as, as real progress, right? Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I suppose, except if you consider um, the situation and the condition of animals, it's very difficult to see any progress. Um, if, if you actually consider it you know, in, in light, so to speak, um, nothing has been gained. All it seems to be is, is that there's ever more exploitation, there's ever more suffering, there's ever more pain. Um, you may get a few trophy animals, but um, the, you know, the cost of, of the suffering as, you know, as, a, you know, as a whole is just ever, ever expanding. So you, to use that word expanding, you have no truck then with seeing as expanding circle. Um, I mean, he ends up with a. I mean, it's a welfareist argument. Um, I'm quite happy if if people want to to do it, but I don't think. Um, again, it comes down to the demands of the market, and if you're trying to work within the market, within the laws, um, which support um, the market, then you you've lost before you start. You will be allowed um, small victories and absolutely massive horrendous, horrifying defeats, which will just be um, invisible. So, I mean, with Singer, he ends up saying, yeah, I have no problem with vivisection, 
Now this is an, an odd position to take, but it is it's the position, it's the logical result of, of his um, utilitarian position. Um, I don't see how Singer saying vivisection is okay and so is having sex with animals is okay, as long as they're consenting. I really don't see this as helpful. Mm. I mean, it's, it's this thing of you're applying human um, categories on non-human beings. Um, this is where rights falls down to be, you know, falls down to begin with. And as Derrida says, um, the idea of, of trying to help animals with the notion of rights, when the very notion of rights has been the worst lever of violence against animals throughout history. What about the notion of suffering? Um, again, it's, you end up, it's, you know, like the, the feminist care ethic, um, you will end up with a, um, um, the suffering of those animals that you can recognize as suffering because you can extrapolate it from your own suffering. So um, people will accept that, that chimpanzees can suffer and that dogs can suffer, but they won't necessarily accept that ants can suffer or that you know, hedgehogs can suffer. So you end up always, it's that, the, at the very origin of the idea, you end up withdrawing a line of these ones, okay, we accept. And it still comes down to as which ones are we can accept in human terms. So, I mean, how is it possible to judge the suffering of another species? I mean, it's, uh, it's based on human suffering and um, things that don't have the same kind of nervous systems, that don't have the same um, <laughs> way of being. Um, I mean, I said I wouldn't like it if, if a species decided whether I suffered or not on the basis of whether they thought I did. But what else is there for us? I mean, where else do we go, really? Because well, why does it have to be based on, on an idea of suffering? Why does it have to be... Or welfare or um, whatever. whatever. Why does it have to be a, a negative thing? Why can't it be... It could be welfare, so... Fine, well, but it'd still be human welfare rather than ant welfare. So how hmm. am I to... You know, we can, we can only start with ourselves, though, because otherwise there, we will never have any kind of... Goalpost. Well, all. I mean, we've been starting with ourselves for 2,000 years. And, no, I'm just, but so, so, what, so where do we go? Well, I mean, if you take the notion of ethics, um, it would be very difficult to convince someone that um, an ethical program should be based on um, the similarity to me. So mm. the idea of basing an ethics on, on, you know, how it relates to me or or how I consider it, or how I view things. I don't think many other people would accept that as a reasonable starting point for ethics. Um, ethics has to take in, as a starting point, that which is completely other. Um, so, it, to me, the idea of starting with the self, although it is, it's kind of like a natural thing. I appreciate it. It's counterintuitive. Um, people will always, um, you know, put their you know, the um, family first, for example. And in that sense, ethics flies out of the window. It suddenly becomes self-interest. Um, but you can't have a program of ethics that's based on self-interest. Um, so this kind of suggestion of, is... But the program of ethics is, is then going to be based on 
interest of the group, including every interest in that group, if we include animals in that group, how do we find out what their interests are? Um, I, because that, or otherwise, we have to go away, is a, leave ethics behind and try something else. Oh, I mean, the new oh, way of, of thinking um, of ecology, this entangled ecologies, um, is, is more interesting, I think. You have, um, where it's not a case of, um, you know, do you have things that, that can do things with their bodies. Eh? And um, in that kind of Spinozan sense, that the body wants to, to, um, to grow, to transform, to extend, to um, interact. So um, the very notion of what it is to be alive um, involves this idea of an in, you know, entangled ecologies. So um, you know, it's almost like a thing of doing least harm, but on a positive sense of how do you, how do you um, take part in an ecology in which all the participants are allowed to, um, you know, are allowed to grow or as um, do what their bodies can do um, as far as possible. And there's no reason why human bodies should be privileged in that regard. Uh, yeah, I agree. Although the notion of ecology includes a lot of destruction. In, mm. Intrinsically, an ecological system is the bigger fish eats the smaller fish. Mm. That is part of ecology. Mm -hmm. So, there, I, I find, yeah, I still... I'm wondering. I I think it's a good. The ecology model is a really interesting one, and that's where I want to go. But um, you know, what do we mean by the most growth? Mm. Uh, well, I think that, you're that. you're you're saying an ecology mo model, which you, is basically on the basis of you know the old model of, of species, and you know you have one species here, and if we put that one there, can we bring the wolves back and this kind of thing? Um, whereas this is more of a of a kind of exploded ecology, where but it, it, in that sense we need to actually we will have to accept certain suffering because if we no longer a certain individual suffering I think but I guess if we don't if we can't actually measure it then there might not be because in an in an ecological system as I said it, absolutely you know I'm all on board with the species distinctions are quite artificial, etc., etc., and even group, you know, individuals versus groups versus, um, etc., but there will still be individual suffering within that, uh, which I think we always react against. I just still don't see how we can measure the sort of better, how that model is better to... So, sorry, I'm just mm. thinking out loud, because I really want to go there, I really want to mm. go with the ecology, but... Well, I mean, with the, the idea that uh, suffering is based on the idea of, of, you know, how bad can we can we stop the negativeness, you know, the negativity that something is suffering, as opposed to can we enhance um, the way of being of something um, by being in relation with with other beings in in differing ways than we've tried so far. I mean, it's, as I say, it would have to be an ongoing practice where mm. there's no way you could set this out as a program to be followed. Mm. Uh, in addition to what you were just discussing, I was thinking that, uh, well, the suffering path seems to, be, to be, seems to me to be terrible, 
But the ecological one, uh, I don't think it would be the perfect thing, but probably the best one available. Uh, because we would have to draw a line at somewhere. Because uh, we, uh, we as humans have invaded the, the areas of other species already. And I don't think we are willing to go back. So uh, how much are we willing to, to give them uh, for them to grow? Uh, I don't know. Uh, will they, they serve us like animals for experiments and things like that? I don't know. Uh, we would have to, to, to define that, that line at some point. Uh, but I guess that's a lot better than um, the suffering thing, because we recognize to the ecology in general uh, its own importance as opposed to uh, identifying the nature of the species. Well, this one, yeah, they may suffer a lot. No, that one, not that much. Uh, I think for the ecological method to, to have any kind of hope, it requires um, the simple matter of an utter and complete transformation of how humans view themselves. That's the problem. I mean, if um, to get past this idea of, of human exceptionalism mm -hmm. and of anthropocentrism and all this, it's not just a case of um, you know understanding that okay, animals, other animals are difference in there is a difference in degree, but not a difference in kind. Um, that doesn't solve the problem because the whole notion of, of human superiority and human exceptionalism and, and anthropocentrism is in practically every single thing we do, in every single relation we have. And the idea of, of changing that is just, you know, huge. It's, it's almost impossible. Um, but it's the only option there is. Well, he actually talks about Plato, but um, he talks about the instinct and the kind of animal uh, consciousness of Plato as kind of depressing or uh, debasing. Right? And that's, okay, maybe that, yeah, that's right. But in, uh, Aristotle also calls it a kind of vegetative consciousness. So I was just wondering, do you think there's any space for plants in this? Uh, and if plants are going to be included, then what about, for example, destroying, if you cut down a you know, thousand year old oak tree or leaf tree or whatever, is that, does that have any ethical, is there any ethical responsibility there? Mm. And then if so, what about non, non living? Non-life. Is there any ethical responsibility? If we imagine, like Star Wars, Death Star destroying some barren moon. Is, is there any kind of wait? I mean, obviously, in boxing, then this will be a problem because if animals, if, if there's a problem getting animals involved in democracy, there's going to be a bit more of a problem getting, getting a tree involved in democracy. Mm. So, just wondering what you think. What you thought? Um, well, in answer to the question of whether plants and and then um, non-living, yes, they would be quite. They they, they do demand ethical consideration. Technical objects, artifacts, um, artificial intelligence, computers, all these um, plants. Um, yeah, I mean, there's an awful lot of work being done on the idea of plant ethics at the moment. And again, it's to do with the idea of of um, allowing um, a living thing to live according to to its own needs and, and desires. I mean, desires is the wrong word, but you know. What about democracy? How is this? Well, I mean, 
As I say, the problem here is, is um, Plato's idea of democracy is not democracy. That's the. Um, I mean, again, I mean, if you wanted to, I've, I've got no interest in in. in yeah, I mean, you're talking about constitutional democracy, and you're coming back into so then you're coming back into including animals within the remit of the law, which again is just simply applying human categories to them. So um, you know, it's just it tends to be both the thing of also oh, if you're gonna um, you know concern about animals, then you're gonna concern plants. It, it comes up all and all the time as this kind of dismissive thing, as if it's a um, you know, an unanswerable question. Um, or you get, um, I mean, uh, there's lots of these things. And, and the answer is there is ethics, and we have ethics to, to things themselves. We have ethics to over. I mean, you, you know, is there an ethics to, to using asbestos? I mean, no. No, the reason I ask is because, I mean, it's just the problem is getting into the law, as you said. And in, in terms of democracy or in terms of legal framework, and mm. well, for example, for example, in Chinese philosophy, there's, there's a it doesn't it, there's a big problem with there's this division between people things that can be included in law and things that should be in terms of ethics, which can't be put in terms of law because as soon as they're put in terms of law, they, they've lost what uh -huh. their original ethics right. principles. Uh -huh. So, uh, mm. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a clear argument that as soon as you draw up a problem of law, then then you've lost whatever you know, they are. Utterly you know, incommensurable. Okay, I'd like to thank you all for coming and I should say thank Richard again.